Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hello. God's looking for people. Did you know that? He is. He's looking for good people. And uh, he doesn't look at the exterior of who we are. He looks at the inside of who we are. He knows what's in our heart. And he's looking for a certain kind of heart, isn't he? He wants people whose heart's after God. And so uh, tonight, let's uh, start in um, 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13, if we want to understand what's uh, going to be said here, we're, we're going to come to the verse in verse 14 here, and we'll, we'll kind of lead up to this, but uh, let's take a look at it now, verse 14. But now your kingdom will not endure. Who's your in that passage? Do you know? Saul. Okay, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. All right, well, if we really want to understand this statement, we have to understand what's happening with God's people. Let's look at the immediate context here, and then we'll, we'll kind of uh, zoom out a little bit and take a bigger look. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men... He sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at, at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. And then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. And so all Israel heard the news. Saul attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel had become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand of the seashore, and that's a lot. They went up, and they camped at Michmash, east of Bethaven, and when the Israelites saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets and among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter, for he said, "Being, uh, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. Samuel, by the way, is always coming at inconvenient times. I don't know if you've noticed that, but he does. Um, And we find that out later in chapter 15 too. Uh, Just as he'd finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. And Saul said, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, so I have, uh, and I have not sought the Lord's 
favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord, uh, your God, he gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And then Samuel left Gilgal. At this point, we don't have Saul's overall rejection. We have a rejection of his dynasty. Okay, So he's not fully been rejected yet, and that's going to come in the next couple chapters. But if we really want to understand this statement, um, we need to understand the broader picture of what's happening with the people of God. Um, it's been some time now since Joshua was the uh, leader of God's people, and he brought them into the promised land, and they had this dark period of their history. What, what um, if I were just to ask, what was one of the things that um, caused the darkness in Israel during that time? People did whatever they wanted, okay? Idolatry, okay? If we're to look for something like at the root of that, what was it? No leadership, okay? Everybody uh, did what was right in their own eyes. They worshiped other gods. They intermarried with the locals that were not, uh, they were not Israelites. They stopped seeking after God's heart, okay? Okay, in Joshua's day, what did they fail to do? Anybody remember? Well, they went in. They didn't, they didn't take their possession of the promised land the way they were supposed to. God gave them uh, Jericho, but then he said, I'm going to give you the promised land, but you're going to have to go in and fight for it. So he's giving them, he's doing the miraculous work, but they have to take up arms. They have to get on their feet. They have to go out and conquest the land. It's God's call to them. They failed to do it. And because they failed to do it, you remember uh, one group came to Joshua and kind of made a deal acting like they were from far away. Remember that? And he's made a treaty with them. And uh, God said, that was a foolish thing to do. Those guys will be a thorn in your side. And they were. And the nations that they failed to drive out were a thorn in their side. And the book of Judges begins like that, talking about how the nations were a thorn in the side of Israel. And they begin to worship their gods. And they begin to forget the God of Israel and to follow after those other gods. And so this is kind of the beginning of a very dark era in Israel's history. She compromised her identity. Uh, by not expelling the nations around them, and uh, then participating with them in their idol worship. And this went on for 300 years through the time that Israel was led by judges. So that's exactly right. They didn't have some central leadership. Uh, judges often were military-type leaders, and most of them didn't lead the whole nation. I don't know if you uh, if that uh, has resonated or sunk in, but many times they led particular portions of Israel and not all of Israel. And so while you have uh, judges, some of them, their lives overlap, and we're hearing different stories from different sectors throughout Israel and not always the whole story of all of Israel. And so it's a divided nation at this time. We even have at the very end of the book of Judges a uh, an internal civil war that takes place in Israel. Do you remember that? And uh, it was mostly focused upon one tribe. Which tribe was it? It's the tribe of Benjamin. And like everybody started feeling sorry for them and thinking, man, we've almost wiped out a complete tribe. And we've promised that we wouldn't give our daughters in marriage. So 
let's set up this trick where they can kidnap our daughters and make them their wives. You remember that? It's a really interesting part of the Bible and, and PG-13, if not more, uh, in many places. But we, uh, we see that it's a dark time in Israel. And, and Samuel came along during that dark time and began to rule the nations. He, the nation, he led them as a kind of prophet judge. Um, you'll remember that it was during this time that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken by the Philistines and the tabernacle at Shiloh was in ruins and their oppressors were, were often, there were other oppressors, but often we hear the name Philistines coming up again and again, right? The Philistines. And uh, we know about them later on because of David's battle and, and dealings with the Philistines. But they were a perpetual difficulty for Israel. They were their overlords and oppressors. And uh, God, I don't know if you've noticed this in the book of Judges, but early on they would go away from God and then they would get uncomfortable because they would be oppressed and then they would call upon the name of the Lord and he'd send a deliverer, right? And then you notice at some point in the book of Judges that they stop calling on the name of the Lord. I don't know if you noticed that, but God has pity on him. It's like, man, these guys can never learn their lesson. And even though it's, it appears that they stop calling upon the name of the Lord, he would send deliverers sporadically anyway. And uh, that's kind of shows the mercy of the God that we serve. And uh, the oppressor, the Philistines, they were organized. Israel's not so organized at this point. And they had superior weapons because they had a monopoly on iron. And so they had superior weapons to the Israelites, many of whom were uh, had their weapons stripped away from them and were using farm implements for military weapons. And so this is the kind of situation that is going on in Israel. It was not Israel's golden age, though it was about to be. But there's one more person that we need to meet before that can happen, and that's King Saul. Okay, uh, We are talking about David, by the way, but we have to go through Saul to get to David. You know that, right? So we want to talk a little bit about Saul tonight. Uh, anybody know what his name means without looking it up? I hear pages turning. Somebody's looking. No, you can. It's always open book here. It means asked of God, asked of Yahweh. Okay? I think that's really significant because one of the reasons they have a king at this point in their history to begin with is that they called out upon the Lord and they told Samuel, we want a king. Remember that? And Samuel's like, it's not a good idea. And God says, don't take it personally. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me as their leader. Um, give them a king, but in, in time they will come to regret it. I'm skipping over a lot, paraphrasing here, but they will come to regret that um, because the kings, and you'll know this from Old Testament, as the king went, so went the nation. And so he said, you'll regret that, but he gave them a king, and the first king that he gave them was Saul. Um, by the way, did you know Saul's not the first king in Israel? There's another king in the book of Judges. Uh, I think it was Abimelech or Ahimelech. He's uh, the first king that takes takes upon himself that role. But Saul is officially the first anointed king, anointed by God to be um, Israel. What's what's Saul like in terms of his physical appearance, or um, how would we how would we describe him? Tall, okay, good. Head and shoulders above the rest. Anything else? Good looking. Yep. Thanks, John, for sharing that. You thought Saul was good looking? <laughs> He's handsome. The Bible says that he, he was tall and handsome, First Samuel 9, verse 2. 
He stood head and shoulders above the rest. I think he, probably in terms of his physical appearance, he was a very imposing figure when he came into the room. People would notice him. And I, I think I would imagine him as somebody who is charismatic as well. Uh, maybe not at first, but as he came into his own a little bit. Um, he may have been, which we'll talk about this in a, in a few minutes, but he may have been the best option the Times had to offer okay, until David uh, was old enough. And uh, that, to me, is just kind of a symbol of what kind of times they live in. And he was anointed by Samuel, and you remember, empowered by God. Uh, but you know that when we're empowered by God, um, God still works on our character. Okay, do you know that? That empowerment does not equal maturity. It's not the same thing. Uh, ideally, those two things ought to go together. <laughs> but we see in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says to them that you've, you don't lack in any spiritual gift, but then he also says things like, aren't you just mere babes? Like, where's the maturity? You got the gifts. Where's the fruit? Where's the maturity? And and uh, those things have to be developed. Even as God deals with David, we'll talk about this a little bit in another um, session, but um, David is a man after God's own heart, but God still needs to work on him and develop him. And he does that with us too. So, um, if you're being a fixer-up project that God's working on a lot, don't get discouraged. He's doing that to all of us until, the Bible says, until the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So we're all fixer-up projects, even me, even you. So we want to trust the Lord in that. But uh, we see that... Um, uh, he was anointed by Samuel, empowered by God, and he led Israel early in his reign to victories over their enemies. So then we read just uh, a few moments ago about one of the early battles where things started to go wrong. And uh, he was preparing for this battle against the Philistines at Michmash, and he didn't see Samuel coming, and he got nervous, and sometimes when he get nervous and in a rush, we make mistakes. And so he offered the sacrifices himself that he should have waited on Samuel for. And uh, God was offended by it, and Samuel was offended by it. And Samuel told him at that point that your dynasty will not endure beyond you, that you're the last of this dynasty, and that he would look for, that God would look for a man after his own heart. Okay. Then um, a couple chapters later, the time elapsed. I'm not sure exactly on the time that elapsed between 13 and 15, but a couple chapters later, he was told to completely destroy the Amalekites in battle. By the way, did you know there was kind of a standing order to take out Amalekites in the Bible? Uh, that was kind of the standing order that they need to be they needed to be wiped out completely. This was part of God's judgment upon them for being a wicked people. And so Israel was God's instrument for that. And so when Saul went to battle with the Amalekites and with their king Agag, um, Saul disobeyed and he kept some of the livestock alive and he took their king captive. And uh, it was for a similar act of obedience that Achan was put to death. Remember, he's called to go in, destroy everything, don't take anything. And he took it, he buried it under his tent and he lost his life. And so we see in here that uh, what Saul has done is a major, uh, a major sin against God. 
And I, that whole story to me is interesting because um, it's something that often we as believers do is that we think instead of obeying God that we can substitute something else for obedience. And that's what he tried to do, right? Instead of obeying, I'm going to offer this in a burnt offering as if God needed that. And that's where we hear, I, I desire uh, for you to obey rather than sacrifice, to hearken, to listen rather than the fat of rams. I'm not interested in your sacrifices if I don't have your heart and your obedience. So we get that out of that, and that comes to first to King Saul. And so at that point, it's the final straw. Um, Samuel pronounced sentence upon Saul, and he refused to have any further dealings with him from that point on. And the interesting thing is that God's judgment doesn't come right away in the fullest sense. But you start to see this unraveling of Saul that begins that day. Have you noticed that? Like he begins to unravel a little bit at a time. And he stops being the king that was impressive and imposing at first. And he becomes, even though we can't see him with our eyes, kind of a a little man. You know what I mean? Not little in physical appearance, but little in his demeanor, little in his purpose, little in his uh, effectiveness. So he begins to go downhill. So Saul then becomes increasingly paranoid, and he neglects his duties. He should have been, uh, do you remember, this is something I want to bring up later, but do you remember that David was, when he was um, a fugitive from Saul, do you remember what it would often say that, that David was doing? It said that he would go on raids to the Negev. Do you know what he was doing? He was finishing the work Joshua had begun. He was doing the work that King Saul should have been doing. He was acting like a king even though he didn't have a palace or a throne. So before he ever could move into the fullness of the title, he was already acting out what his purpose was in God. And I think that that's really important to understand. Saul's the one who should have been raiding the Negev. Instead, what's he doing? He's pursuing David. He's trying to protect his own kingdom instead of build the kingdom of God. Instead of protecting God's kingdom, he's protecting his own. Well, God was looking for a certain kind of person. And in verse 14, it says, uh, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people because you've not, you've not kept the Lord's command. A man after, a man after his own heart. What does, what does that mean? Uh, there we go. Whoop. Let's see if we can get to it here. And this is our verse. We've already seen that. There's a there's a few different ways you can take after, right? Okay. Uh, I w- I didn't know this, but aft after is connected to the word aft. Did you know that? What's aft? Anybody know? What's that? The rear, the stern, the back of the boat, right? That's connected. It's what comes after the back of the boat. At least our English word. I can't tell you what the Hebrew word looks like, but I do know uh, that the one of the ways that we can understand this is that after can mean it's a preposition, and it means to it can mean to follow an event, as in a, a sequence. Okay, so uh, first I went to kindergarten, and then after that I went to first grade. So we have a sequence that's happening here, and um, maybe we would see it that way. And if we're Looking at it that way, that following should go away. But you can see um, 
first there's God, and then he created man. This is unlikely for this verse, okay? So I don't think it's talking about that. But uh, then the second one is um, in pursuit of, as someone is after me. Like someone's after me, they're pursuing me. <laughs> you know, like maybe you can imagine uh, a movie you've seen or a book you've read where somebody runs into the police station, they're after me, okay? Something is after me, and in this sense, it would be uh, a, the pursuit, uh, as in someone is after me, they're pursuing me. And maybe, as it says, I've searched for a, a man who is after my own heart. One of the, perhaps one of the meanings could be um, a man that's after the heart of God, that's in pursuit of the heart of God, okay? That's one possibility. I don't think it is that, uh, although that's true, and that would be in pursuit of. And then Another one is like, okay? So um, like, as, as we read early on in Scripture, that uh, they, the animals produce after their kind, right? After their kind. So this is to be like something, uh, a man after God's kind of character. Okay, could it be that? Could it be that God is describing somebody who is after his likeness? I want a leader who is like me and his leadership. I like that. I don't know that that's the one. It would look something like this. You can see the little triangle there that uh, he's searching for a man that that is like him in a certain way. So like. And then the final way is the kind. This is uh, the kind that's desired. The man, the kind of man uh, my heart desires. And I want you to know all of these are true when we say that he's searching for a man after his own heart. It's, it's true that, that David is the kind of uh, person who is after God in terms of chronology, yes, uh, but that has nothing to do with this context. Um, in pursuit, as in someone's after me, like somebody who's pursuing God, David pursued God, didn't he? He did. He pursued God. But I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily it, but that's true of David. Um, David, in, in one sense, is acting like God. I think probably for me, the one that resonates most is when uh, he searches out the descendants of Jonathan to show kindness. Remember Mephibosheth? And he says, is, is there anyone in Saul's family that I can show kindness to? And, and uh, he hears the story of Mephibosheth, and he has him brought in. And Mephibosheth has been crippled since he was little because he got dropped, fleeing from David. And um, he shouldn't have fled from David, but in fear they did that. And so David brings him in, and and Mephibosheth thinks this is the end. And what does David do? Acts like God would, right? He shows him mercy. He says, no, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to destroy you. I want to make you a part of the family. From now on, you're going to eat like you're one of my sons. That's like God. I don't know that this is the point of this, but I think probably the... The point of this is that this is the kind of man that God desires. He's desiring. He's after a man like this. In Jeremiah chapter 3, 15 is the only other Old Testament text where it uses a similar phrase. And he says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. And it may mean like him, but uh, they're, they're shepherds that will obey the Lord. And I think this is what after my own heart means is 
that uh, their their desire it's the kind of uh, person that God desires, a kind of person who will represent him, a kind of person who will obey him. And so he's looking for that kind of man. Saul's not that man. And that becomes increasingly clear as he gets more and more power, he gets a bigger and bigger ego. And he gets more and more paranoid as time goes on. And it's interesting to me, I, I, I want to preface this next section with a, I think, because there's some things here that we're, we're speculating on a little bit, but it makes sense in light of the context. And so let's take a look at, this is God looking for a certain kind of man. Okay, this is our, our timeline. I don't know how, it's super tiny, and I'm sorry if you're in the back. We'll zoom in on this a little bit. Uh, but I'd like you to notice this orange line up, up there on the left is the time of the judges. The hot pink line, I, don't, I guess you call it hot pink. Uh, I wasn't thinking of calling it that when I put it in there. Um, is the United Kingdom of Israel. There was a time when all of Israel was united um, under one kind of central leadership. And then in time, they became divided, right? And that's what this kind of teal line is up here. So we have a 200-year span here. You can see starting with 1100 B.C. and ending with um, 900 B.C. Okay, and uh, I know you know this, but just a reminder, in Old Testament times, the years go backwards. We count backwards, right? Everybody know that? So we're counting backwards from 1100 down to 900 BC. And here's what I think is really interesting about this. This is uh, Hill and Walton from their um, survey of the Old Testament. There's some different different uh, views on on how the timing of this all works we do know we do know one thing pretty certain we know that in 931 BC that the kingdom of Israel split okay so we can work back from that um, 931 BC is right around here right around the time Rehoboam comes to reign the end of Solomon's life um, he splits the kingdom and you can read all about that interesting story another time but uh, just going back a little bit, one of the things that occurs to me is we're, we're talking about David being a man after God's own heart. He's not necessarily a product of his times, okay? I think that there was a pocket of piety, godliness in Bethlehem that wasn't necessarily true of the rest of the nation at that time. But Saul probably is the best option up until David in his time. That's what I think. I can't prove that, but that's what I why I think God must have chosen him, that he's not ideal. And we see this in some of the other leaders that come about during the time of the judges, that um, they're not great virtuous people. Like, is anybody surprised that the Spirit of the Lord would move on Samson? Anybody find that a little surprising? Because he's the Holy Spirit. And so it's a little bit surprising that he would move on somebody like Samson and use somebody like Samson. Of course, what <laughs> what he uses Samson for is is interesting and uh, just a little side note here. Um, remember, the Philistines had iron weapons. Do you remember what Samson used to thrash them? The jawbone of a donkey. Like, that's less than bronze. So the Spirit of God had to be involved in that. I, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that was kind of interesting as I was studying today. That's that's a bonus. You can put a couple extra bucks in the offering if you like. But... Um, here, just just notice some things in um, our passage here. The, the judges, and I'll just zoom in a little bit. Maybe we can see it this way. Okay. 
Okay, can you see that a little bit better? All right, 1100. I'd like you to notice this top blue line here. This is Samuel's life, and actually his life goes to the end of the number, which he lived to be, I think, 78. Okay, so if you pass that, you've outlived Samuel in terms of years. Isn't that wonderful? Samson lived to be 40. Okay, and we all know how he went down. But here's the thing that occurs to me, and, and Walter Kaiser has a little bit different uh, timing on these things, but Hill and Walton, John Walton is one of the premier Old Testament scholars. He thinks that Samson was actually younger than Samuel, and that Samson and Samuel's lives overlapped. Not only that, but Samson and Saul's lives overlapped. So it tells you what time Saul is coming from. He's coming from the dark times of the judges. Are you with me? So we wonder at Saul, like, God, why would you choose Saul? When you look at the other things that are out there, Saul doesn't look like that bad of a choice. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Okay, so some of this is speculation, of course, but I think it rings true that God was looking for somebody. It wasn't his timing uh, when he said that... Um, they haven't to Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They rejected me. That it wasn't his will. It seems at that particular time to have them have a king. And we already know from the end of Genesis that God was going to give Israel king from the tribe of Judah. So I reason from that that God's plan was to make David the first king. But Israel got um, trigger happy. I don't know what you would call that with their prayers, <laughs> and they wanted this thing to come early. Remember, woe to those who say, let God hurry that we may see it. Isaiah 50, 20, I think it is. That's, I think, what they're doing is they want this ahead of time. And so God takes the best option, even though it's not his will, and he gives them out of concession Saul. This is the leader that we get, a leader who in time, though he starts out well, he he does not end well. And so I think he chose Saul um, to use him in this way. And so I take this to mean that Saul was that concession because someone like David wasn't ready yet. And here's, here's a thought, that Saul is anointed king when he's 30. And as we show here, 1050, 1051 B.C., the time of the judges, uh, they were confused about God and what was right and wrong. And many of their leaders were surprisingly ungodly. And wicked, the wickedness of Sodom could be found uh, within Israel's border. Do you remember that? Um, I think it's Judges 19. Do you remember that story? The man traveling through the territory, a certain territory. What was the tribe that he were traveling through? It was Benjamin. Do you remember what city that happened in? It was Gibeah. Do you remember where Saul's from? It's Gibeah. I think Saul may have been alive when that happened. Do you remember that? They... The guys came to the door at the man's house and said, bring out your guest, and they throw the concubine out. The men of the city have their way with the concubine, and she dies, and then they cut her up into 12 pieces and send her all over Israel. And then everybody is outraged and comes to war with Benjamin and leaves them almost no survivors. Saul's one of the survivors. Isn't that interesting? 
Like all of this is connected and all of this is in close proximity. Even if you would put a larger span between Judges and King Saul, he was probably at least a five-year-old child when that happened. And I think he was probably older. So when we're talking about the wickedness of the times, Saul may have looked like a good option, but he was not completely a man after God's own heart. Listen, I think that sometimes we can justify mediocrity in our Christianity because of the times we live in, and that's no justification. We need to live wholeheartedly, full throttle for God, regardless of the times we live in. Our times aren't an excuse. We need to be fully committed to Him. And so I think this is the timing of uh, what's going on here. And Israel was in that state. They looked around for a man to be king. The best option, Saul, um, whom I think by comparison with the godly t- uh, ungodliness of the times was the closest thing to a godly man that they could find. But after, um, after Saul there was a, a boy was being prepared to be anointed king who would uh, be available to God. And as you think about the contrast between these two, I'd like you to think about this as we come into the uh, kind of the closing turn here and, and draw this to a close. I'd like you to think about something that, that Saul uh, and David were contrasting pairs. If you look at Saul, he's impressive physically. And you remember when David was anointed, Samuel came to his house, and they didn't even bring him out. Uh, he may have been 15. He may have been around 17, somewhere somewhere in his mid-teen years, I think. Um, they didn't even bring him out. And when uh, Samuel saw, he looked with natural eyes upon the oldest, and God said, that's not the one. I've rejected him. He's not going to be king. And I don't know exactly how this went, but I imagine that each one stepped up, nope, 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 none of these. I think I've heard God on this. Uh, do you have any other sons? Well, <laughs> we got the boy out in the field. David, we'll bring him in. We'll all wait. And I love that part. I'm the youngest in our family. I love that part. <laughs> all the older ones got to wait on the youngest. Because when you're youngest, you don't always get respect. What's that? You always have to wait on the older ones. Yeah. So they made him wait, and I think it kind of dignifies things. Probably the reason the older ones were a little salty when um, they went to battle later on. So they bring David in, and, of course, uh, Samuel anoints him as king. Don't look upon this one because I've rejected him. You Man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. God looks past some of the things that we... We look to when he's looking for greatness in people, and he's looking. He's looking. When you look at Saul, he starts out humble and pliable, and in time, his ego grew to match his power. And he came to a point in his life where he was too big in his own mind to have to obey God. Think about that. that there could be, if we allow pride to grow up in our heart, a moment in which we don't think we have to obey God anymore. It could happen. So he, he felt that way, and it stopped uh, being about God's kingdom, and it became all about his kingdom. And I, I think this is the battle that is raging in us today, and in, in people. I, maybe not you and me, but I, I think in some way it's probably a potential 
danger is that the question is, whose kingdom are we living for? Whose kingdom are we fighting for? Um, our own or the kingdom of God? And so this is one of the reasons why, at least early on, uh, God could bless Solomon because Solomon said, above all, I want, I want you to give me wisdom so I can rule over your kingdom well. You know what he was, he was doing? He was, he was essentially saying Matthew 6.33. He's seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then God said, I'll add these other things to your life. But um, what happens when the reverse of that is true, when we seek our own kingdom? Jesus said it this way, if anyone wants to save their life, they'll lose it. You know that that our life is encompassing everything. And then he says, what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his, his soul? Um, tragic. But this is, this is what uh, Saul is about, is that he's gotten too big. It stopped being about God's kingdom. It became about his. He stopped fighting the Lord's battles because he was consumed with fighting his own. And I'll save some thoughts about Saul for another time, but... Saul became so uh, self-focused that it drove him mad. And that will happen to us. It's like narcissists sitting at the pool, looking at his own reflection, starving, wasting away. And that's, that's really um, a great metaphor for our culture, isn't it? That we're, <laughs> remember that, I, there was this kid I heard about that he took... I think over a thousand selfies a day. And his parents tried to take his phone away from him. If he had his phone away from him for like 10 seconds, he would freak out on them. There was this addiction to him himself. And that's uh, the thing that sometimes we'd rather live life looking at our own image than we would looking out at the world. Saul's in, in that boat. But David was someone who wasn't consumed with concern for himself, but the kingdom of God. And we see that in the battle with Goliath. I don't know if you, you've caught this in the story, but when you get to the story, and, and we'll talk a little bit about this, but you get to the story of um, David fighting Goliath, which is somewhere right in here. That's this G right here. Somewhere people think around... Uh, 1020, 1020, um, 1021, 1020 B.C., that David fights Goliath. That when that happens, um, who should have been fighting Goliath? Saul. And Saul selflessly <laughs> offers David his armor. You can take my armor and fight this guy. Like, what kind of king who's supposed to be the ruler over these people uh, they, th- it was set up perfectly for Saul to go fight this. But Saul can't fight it. Why? Well, and there's a reason why he's a chicken. He's, the Lord's not with him. The Lord's rejected him. And he knows that any time, at any battle, that could be his last. So he can't. He can't risk it. But he'll send a 17-year-old out. To fight 15-year-old, how old, however old David is at the moment. And David's not worried about himself. He's thinking about the glory of God. How can you guys sit here and watch this guy mock the God of Israel, the living God? He says to his brothers, and they're cowering, uh, hunkering down. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture of uh, Douglas MacArthur standing up as all of his guys are in the trenches. 
and I imagine machine gun fire coming from the other way, but uh, just the courageous leaders that uh, can be. David, I imagine, is like that, and they're like, don't you have some sheep to be getting back to? And he's like, is there not a cause? This is a good reason to fight. And so David uh, goes and picks up the weapon that he knows. He sheds the armor he doesn't know. And he goes and he slays Goliath. You come at me with your your weapons, and I come at you in the name of the Lord our God. Like, it's not so important what weapon I have. It's important who's with me. And he kills Goliath. But he's not worried about his own life. He's concerned more about the glory of God. That's That's the kind of thing that made him king. That's the kind of thing that made him the man that God was looking for. He's more concerned about the kingdom of God than about himself. And we see it when the Lord anoints him. You know, we, uh, we see it in the battle with Goliath with his daring missions while he's a fugitive. He takes 600 men and he raids the Negev. He's got a band of misfits that have joined with him. And what does he do? He goes and he does what Saul should have been doing. And he cares about the kingdom of God, even though presently Israel has cast him out as a fugitive and they've joined Saul in doing so. Like he's got nowhere where he can go and hide. So he has to hide even among the enemy. Um, But even while he's hiding among the enemy, he's doing the Lord's work in Israel and for Israel. Have you noticed that? That's selfless. Like to be rejected, to be an outcast, to not be wanted, and to still do the Lord's work. That's the kind of man David is. And then we see it in his selfless departure when Absalom rose up against him. You guys ever walked with David up that up that uh, that ascent as he go, gets ready to go out of Jerusalem and uh, his enemies throwing rocks at him? And one of them, one of his guys, I think maybe Abishai, says to him, "Just give me the word, and I'll go cut that guy's head off." And David says, "No. How do we know that the Lord hasn't told him to do that? Maybe this is the end, and it's better that the Lord has His way. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's kind of God. That's the kind of guy God is looking for. It's kind of woman that God is looking for. Someone who's willing." to give their all to be a small part. I think of David in the New Testament, or excuse me, um, Paul in the New Testament when he says, even if I'm the drink offering that's poured out upon the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'll rejoice. Philippians. The drink offering is the smallest part of the offering. He's recognizing they're the bigger part of the offering. I'll pour out my all, even if it's just the smallest part. This is uh, the heart of David. It's not the heart of Saul. Saul's got to be the big man. He's got to be the, the center of attention. He's got to have his kingdom. David wants God to have his kingdom. So in 1 Samuel 16, um, we'll save more of our timeline for later, but 1 Samuel 16, well, you know it, verse 6 and 7. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord has uh, anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I thought of something that the prophet says to 
one of David's descendants, Asa, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro through the earth, seeking out somebody that he can show his power to and work through. And uh, I think that this is applicable to us, that God is still looking for people. You understand that? That we don't have to be a product of our times. I think it's a sad excuse when we allow our times to define who we are. I think we let God do that. Remember what Joshua challenged the Israelites with? It's like his closing call to covenant. He says, choose today whom you'll serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. He says, choose for you whom you'll serve, the gods that your forefathers worship beyond the Euphrates, ancestral deities, or the gods of the people living around you. Will you serve them? As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. In other words, I'm not going to be defined by our ancestry that goes back prior to Abraham. I'm not going to be defined by the people around us. Let the Lord, our God, put his name upon us and define who we are. This is uh, the quality of David. Or this is something, is, is it just the quality of David or is it something that could be true of us? And if so, how? If God's looking for a certain kind of person, then the question is, what, what is he going to find? Because there have been times in history where he couldn't find, it appears, a single person. Remember Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30? I searched for a man who would stand in the gap, and I found none. That's a sad day when God looks and he can't find somebody. And I think that's the, the case uh, in Jeremiah when it's none, are, none are righteous, no, not one. And probably through the times of Judges, too, when he had to search and search and he used the best that he could. But they're not very impressive. And I wonder if we're headed towards times like that or if maybe we'll see a resurgence of, God, of godliness or a remnant of godly people who will stand up and say, not me. I'm not going to be defined by my times or my yesterday. I'm going to be defined by what the Lord does. And I will live my life in obedience to him. I'll be his person in any situation. I'll reflect his glory in all that comes before. You see, um, God, that God used flawed people is not an excuse for compromise. He wants us to be the kind of people that will give him full obedience, the kind of people who can represent him today. And uh, that's what I think David was in his time, that uh, David fulfilled a particular call in his day. I love that passage in Acts when, I think it's Stephen's preaching, and he talks about David. He says he fulfilled God's purpose in his generation, and then he rested with his father's. Man, let that be true of us. Let it not be true that we fulfilled our own purpose in this generation. And then we passed on and everything falls into nothingness because it doesn't matter in the light of eternity. Instead, I hope it can be said of us that we fulfilled, we fulfilled God's purpose in our generation like David did in his. That's what God's looking for. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention tonight. Father, thank you for dignifying us with a great call to follow you. And we thank you, Lord, that today as we we make a decision to follow you and commit ourselves to you, that you give us the Holy Spirit so that it's not us trying by our own strenuous efforts alone to accomplish this, but it's in cooperation with your Holy Spirit that 
that great things can come from every life that's committed to you fully. You desire wholehearted commitment. Lord, you've made a comparison throughout all of the Old Testament that they either were or they weren't like their father David who followed you with all of their heart. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to apply that question to our lives, Lord, that we might we might be sincerely um, committed to you and not half-hearted in what we do. I pray, Lord, that as we you're looking for a person who's after your own heart, that that could be true of us. We pray for your help in it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you're blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.